Make sure you're subscribed to Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit that subscribe button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. We all live in a post-pandemic world now, and for some, it's never over. And for others, it was over long ago, at least in terms of how they practically live their lives. Big questions are being raised, like, were the pandemic lockdowns necessary? How was medical ethics fundamentally altered during the pandemic, not only during the pandemic, but early in the pandemic, and what permanent damage did all the efforts on part of government and business do to our society and to our freedoms? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about some lessons learned from the pandemic, Dr. Aaron Cariotti. He's director of the program in Bioethics and American Democracy at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and the Health and Human Flourishing Program at the Zephyr Institute in Palo Alto, California. Previously taught psychiatry at the University of California, Irvine, and he's author of the new book, The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. Dr. Cariotti, welcome. Thanks, Todd. It's great to be with you. Tell us the story about your legal battles with the University of California. So a little over a year ago, I made the decision as director of the medical ethics program at UC Irvine to challenge the University of California's vaccine mandate in federal court. I had already published a piece that year in the Wall Street Journal arguing that university vaccine mandates were unethical, that they violated basic foundational principles of medical ethics, like the principle of informed consent. But I felt that more than just speaking out and criticizing the policy, I had to try to do something to revise the policy. So I filed a lawsuit on behalf of individuals like me who had natural immunity after recovering from COVID and made an argument under the Constitution's 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause that our equal protection rights were being violated. Shortly after I filed the lawsuit, before the court made a ruling, the university placed me on unpaid suspension, and then a month later they fired me. So I ended up losing my job at the university, where I'd really spent the entirety of my career as an academic physician, all 15 years, plus four years of residency training also at UCI. That was a big, obviously a big professional change for me, but I don't have any regrets about what I did in that case, I, I believe I stood up for patients' rights and criticized a public policy that was harmful and that we now know didn't achieve its intended public health purposes. So now I, I'm continuing my work on COVID public policy, trying to push back against not only vaccine mandates, but also make sure that we understand the harms that were done through things like lockdowns, school closures, and other public health measures that ended up doing more harm than good. What is the biomedical security state, as you call it? The biomedical security state is a kind of unholy welding of three things that used to be distinct, but over the last 20 years have increasingly coalesced into a very powerful regime that we saw manifested during the pandemic. And these three elements are, first of all, an increasingly militarized public health apparatus. 
The second element is digital technologies of surveillance and control. The smartphone, which has only been out since the iPhone was first released in 2007. So this is the first epidemic or pandemic of the digital age. And things like vaccine passports were used during the pandemic to monitor individuals' behaviors, individuals' movements, their ability to associate freely in society and to move about freely. And digital technologies were also used to control the flow of information, as we now know. Our lawsuit, Missouri v. Biden, against the Biden administration senior officials, which is now in federal court, I'm one of the four private plaintiffs in that lawsuit filed by the Attorney General of Louisiana and Missouri, we're alleging a a collusion between the federal government and social media to control the flow of information and to censor people like me, people like Jay Bhattacharya, who were criticizing the government's preferred pandemic policies. And when the government suborns social media companies to do its bidding, this is a clear First Amendment free speech violation. So an increasingly militarized public health apparatus digital technologies that were utilized for surveillance and control during the pandemic. And those are backed up by the third element, which is the police powers of the state. And what I argue in the book, what I argue in The New Abnormal, is that even though a lot of the specific pandemic policies have been rolled back, this entire infrastructure is still in place and will be used in the future. And it's just sort of waiting for the next real or imagined declared public health crisis in order to advance in terms of next steps, which will involve increasingly subtle and intrusive methods of controlling the behavior of large populations. You mentioned informed consent. What is it and why was it so quickly abandoned? Informed consent is the foundational principle of modern medical ethics. It's the principle that says adults of sound mind should be able to make the decision after being given adequate information about the risks, the benefits, and the alternatives to a proposed medical intervention, that they have the right to either accept or decline that medical intervention. And that parents can do that on behalf of their own children who are not yet old enough to be able to consent. And this principle was first articulated in the Nuremberg Code following World War II. The Nuremberg Code grew out of the Nuremberg trials and part of those trials, in addition to trying Nazi war criminals for crimes against humanity, there were 12 physicians also tried at Nuremberg for crimes against humanity for engaging in unethical research on human subjects, including individuals who were imprisoned in Nazi death camps, doing experiments on them without their consent. And so the world rightly reacted to that with horror and said to prevent this from ever happening again, we need an international consensus on foundational principles that will govern research ethics on human subjects and principles that will govern the practice of medicine. And so the Nuremberg Code grew out of that. It's something that lots of folks have heard of, but not many folks have read. I encourage our readers to go take a look at it. It's only a page and a half long. It's a quick read, but the very first principle articulated in the Nuremberg Code which became law in most nations around the world, was this principle of free and informed consent. And unfortunately, that was precisely the principle that was jettisoned and thrown overboard 
during the COVID pandemic, especially with things like vaccine mandates, where people were forced to get a novel injection under threat of losing their job in some cases, or not being able to travel, not being able to visit family or associate in public spaces. And informed consent was also compromised by a censorship regime that suppressed important information about vaccines or other COVID measures that the public was not given access to. And if you don't have access to adequate information about a proposed intervention, you're not able to give free and informed consent. That informed part is passed over and people are making a decision potentially based on inadequate information about the benefits or the risks of the particular intervention. Were the lockdowns necessary? The lockdowns were not necessary. They were a wholly novel public health intervention that had never been previously tested on human populations. The justification for lockdowns came from uh, computer models like the Imperial College London projections that turned out to be not just off, but wildly off by several orders of magnitude. The origin of lockdowns, people may not remember, was Wuhan, China, that in early February 2020, as the pandemic was getting going, the WHO sent a delegation to China that included Anthony Fauci's deputy, a man named Clifford Lane from the NIH, who went to China and they were told by the Chinese authorities, specifically the Chinese Communist Party members in power, that China had stamped out COVID through these authoritarian, draconian, severe lockdowns, through this approach of completely controlling the movement of their entire population. This turned out not to be true. China is having massive problems right now with COVID, and their even more draconian lockdowns right now are not working. But Cliff Lane came back and convinced Fauci that lockdowns were the way to go. Fauci and Dr. Burks from the President's Coronavirus Task Force convinced the president, President Trump at that time. And then Burks went on a roadshow uh, visiting the governors of all the various states and convincing the governors that if they did not lock down, millions of people would die and that blood would be on their hands. So the lockdowns were not necessary. We now have a lot of empirical evidence that they didn't achieve their stated public health purpose. They didn't slow or stop the spread of the virus in any meaningful way. And instead, they inflicted enormous collateral harms on populations that were subjected to lockdowns and school closures in many places for the better part of an entire year. How did we arrive at employer vaccine mandates? Employer vaccine mandates were based on CDC recommendations that people take the vaccine, but the CDC is not an agency that can make federal law. They're not a rulemaking agency. And so they could recommend the vaccine and private employers based on that recommendation then said, okay, we can mandate it and we're just doing what the CDC says. And so we end up with a situation in which no one is actually held responsible for these policies. If you go to your employer and say, you know, you can't do this, or this is a violation of informed consent, or this is a violation of my rights, your, your employer falls back on, well, we're just doing what the CDC is telling us to do. So then you go to the CDC and you say, 
vaccine mandates are unethical or they're too broadly construed. People with natural immunity shouldn't be subjected to vaccine mandates. And the CDC simply says, well, we're not responsible for those mandates. We don't make policy. We just give recommendations. So you end up going around in this kind of bureaucratic circle. And if you're harmed by the vaccine that you took under a mandate, uh, your employer is not held liable. The CDC who made the recommendation is not held liable. The pharmaceutical company that is creating the vaccine is indemnified against all liability. They're immune from all liability under federal law. So you really have, we ended up with a situation in which people subjected to vaccine mandates from public or private employers had no recourse and no way in which to push back or to contest those mandates meaningfully. Dr. Aaron Cariotti is our guest. He's author of the new book, The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. He says it's a mistake to view the Centers for Disease Control as a super doctor. We'll find out what he means next. Thanks to our beloved on-demand listeners, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality. You can help us climb the charts by subscribing, rating, and reviewing Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us cast Christ's net on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. Essential Exercise for the Christian Mind. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press is a family-run publisher of classical Christian education materials for homeschools and private schools. Every page of the Memoria Press curriculum leads students to a mastery of content, an understanding of the classical heritage of the Christian West, and an appreciation of truth, goodness, and beauty. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. memoriapress.com. Do you want your neighbors and community to see what you're celebrating this Christmas season? Why not display an outdoor nativity in front of your home or church? It's a great way to show others what Christmas is all about, the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Check out the Outdoor Nativity Store at OutdoorNativityStore.com. Durable, affordable, and American-made nativities. OutdoorNativityStore.com. OutdoorNativityStore.com. Welcome back to Issues Etc. We're discussing lessons learned from the pandemic with Dr. Aaron Cariotti. He previously taught psychiatry at the University of California, Irvine, and he's author of the new book, The New Abnormal. You say that it was a mistake to view the Centers for Disease Control as a super doctor. What do you mean by that? So the CDC is not 
a medical organization. It is an organization focused on the spread of infectious disease. And the CDC lacks the requisite medical expertise to give recommendations that can be applied to each and every patient. Physicians have to tailor their recommendations to the individual needs of patients. And so to treat a CDC recommendation as though it can be applied across the board in a one-size-fits-all fashion ends up doing a lot of harm to individual patients. And doctors lose the, what I call the, the appropriate discretionary latitude to tailor recommendations of public health officials to the specific needs of patients. The CDC also has another problem that's baked into the structure of the CDC. The CDC really needs to be split into two entirely separate agencies. And the reason for that is that the CDC has two functions that are fundamentally irreconcilable. And the first function is to gather data, epidemiological data from all 50 states and make that data available and publish it. Things like COVID case counts, COVID death and hospitalization counts. That's a purely scientific epidemiological function. But the CDC also has a second function that they've assumed of giving recommendations, recommendations that very often were quickly translated into requirements or mandates. And that second function is inescapably political. And so what happened during the pandemic, as the New York Times reported on this earlier this year, the CDC stopped publishing large amounts of its epidemiological data on COVID. And the reasons that they gave, the spokesperson for the CDC admitted, was that if we publish this data, it will increase vaccine hesitancy. And that was because the data was showing that very quickly vaccine efficacy declined over time after a few months. So what you saw was when these two functions, the public policy function, which is inescapably political, and the scientific function of publishing data, when these came into conflict, it was science that gave way and it was science that was suppressed. So if we're going to have a federal agency that gives public health recommendations, and maybe that's a good idea, maybe it's not, we have to recognize that's a political function. And our public health agency that's responsible for monitoring, gathering, and publishing data needs to have a firewall between it and policy issues. So its only responsibility is to publish data. It needs to be totally transparent and make that data available to all independent researchers for research and analysis. And until we do that, we're going to continue to have the scientific function of that agency compromised and politicized in ways that are going to be harmful. What role did the Food and Drug Administration play in biomedical security? So the FDA, sad to say, over the last three years, it's become very apparent that the FDA is an agency that has been captured by the very industry that the agency was set up to regulate, namely the pharmaceutical industry. The pharmaceutical industry obviously is going to be profit-oriented, and we, we don't fault corporations for being profit-oriented. But the FDA's job is to make sure that the products, whether drugs or vaccines from the pharmaceutical industry are adequately tested before they are approved for use in human beings. And what we've seen now is a kind of rubber stamp process at the FDA, most recently, just this week, where they gave authorization for the new bivalent booster vaccine to be given to very young children, six months 
of age and older. And this was based on absolutely no clinical trials data. So a new vaccine that's never been tested in human beings of that age was nonetheless given approval by the FDA to be used in that very same patient population. A patient population that, by the way, is at extremely low risk of bad outcomes from COVID. And so we've reached a situation in which the industry influence on the FDA is such that the authorities at the FDA authorize and rubber stamp the products of the pharmaceutical industry. And they do that for a few years. And then they leave the FDA and get a very plum consulting gig or seat on the board at these large pharmaceutical companies, making millions of dollars for as a kind of reward for having done the bidding of the industry during their time as a public regulator at the FDA. And so we have this kind of revolving door of the industry regulators going to work for industry, oftentimes coming back into regulatory positions after that. And this mutual back scratching kind of quid pro quo arrangement has unfortunately compromised the FDA's core mission and made them, at least in regards to certain products, a wholly owned subsidiary of Big Pharma. What permanent damage has been done by the biomedical security state? Well, the permanent damage from lockdown, school closures, vaccine mandates, vaccine passports is very difficult to actually calculate because there are damages in so many sectors of American life from our mental health. We're seeing a lot of attention now, including a recent Washington Post piece on the mental health harms of lockdowns and school closures. This is not new information. I was writing about this, what I called the other pandemic back in October of 2020, pointing out that rates at that time, the summer of 2020, rates of anxiety disorders had quadrupled, rates of depressive disorders had tripled, suicide and suicidal behavior had skyrocketed. One in 10 Americans in the month of June 2020 reporting serious thoughts of suicide. One in four young adults, if you break it down by age, 24% of young adults reporting serious suicidal thinking, seriously contemplating suicide during the month of June 2020. We saw a rise in deaths of despair, deaths by not only suicide, but drug overdose and alcohol-related illnesses. That was already a crisis in 2018, 2019. Before the pandemic, we poured gasoline on that fire. Drug overdose rates in one year jumped from 70,000 to 100,000 from 2019 to 2020. Same thing happened with alcohol-related deaths. Back in 1999, drug overdose deaths were only 20,000. So we had more than tripled uh, our, our drug overdose crisis in two decades and then increased that by another 40% in one year. So this is one subset of very serious harms. There were medical harms. People's medical health was also compromised by lockdowns and by school closures. There was damage to our religious communities in terms of not being able to associate, not being able to gather for worship for long periods of time. There were harms to our civil rights, the freedom of association, the freedom of speech, the free exercise of religion were all compromised during the pandemic. There are enormous educational and developmental harms on an entire generation of young children who were forced to try to do schooling from home People without resources, the, the, the poor, the working class, 
we're all disproportionately harmed by these kinds of policies. We saw the largest upward transfer of wealth in world history from the working class and middle class to the tech elites, the very tip of the socioeconomic pyramid during lockdowns. Now we're seeing rising rates of inflation because the government, to shield us from the natural consequences of the government's policies in 2020, the government gave loans to small businesses to try to keep them afloat, loans that they are not required to pay back. Stimulus money was given to individuals to help shield them from the effects of lockdowns, which sounded good in the short term, of course, trying to take care of people economically, but pumping all that money into circulation only had the effect of basically making that money disappear a year or two later with rising rates of, of inflation. And inflation is now basically stealing from people's savings, from people's hard-earned savings, and benefiting those like the government who have massive amounts of debt, whose debt is, is sort of inflated away during a period of hyperinflation. So many of these harms we're already able to measure. Many of these harms will only be fully measurable over the course of decades, literally, as that, that younger generation that was harmed by lockdowns and school closures comes of age. We'll, we'll see the long-term, sad to say, we'll see the long-term effects of their educational, cognitive, social, emotional development being hampered during those critical years when they should have been in school, should have been interacting with peers. This is Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking with Dr. Aaron Cariotti about lessons learned from the pandemic. Operation Barnabas is a program of LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces. Operation Barnabas enables Lutheran Church Missouri Synod congregations to lead their communities in welcoming our servicemen and women back home after deployments. Find out more about Operation Barnabas at lcms.org slash armed forces. Serving those who serve, LCMS Ministry of the Armed Forces, lcms.org slash armed forces. So how should we have responded to the pandemic? We'll answer that question next. Quality, quantity, qualified. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to our listeners, Issues Etc. has operated independently and in the black for 14 consecutive years. Please help us cover all of our expenses again this year by making a year-end tax-deductible gift. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our latest book, The Wittenberg Trail, Paths to Lutheranism, and a new recording of 22 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution today at issuesetc.org. Thanks for your support at the end of 2022. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org.
Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about lessons learned from the pandemic with Dr. Aaron Cariotti. He's director of the program in bioethics and American democracy at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and the Health and Human Flourishing Program at the Zephyr Institute in Palo Alto, California. Previously taught psychiatry at the University of California, Irvine, and he's author of the new book, The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. Dr. Cariotti, how should we have responded to the pandemic? We should have taken a focused protection approach, recognizing the two most basic epidemiological facts about COVID. Number one, the infection fatality rate is 0.2%. It's been a number widely replicated. It was known from research by Jay Bhattacharya and Johnny Unides at Stanford done in April of 2020. So very early on in the pandemic, we knew that contrary to early reports from the World Health Organization, which said this had a three or 4% infection fatality rate, the actual fatality rate was 0.2%, which is not negligible, but it's not the kind of alarmist projections that we were initially presented with. The second most important fact is the age gradient, that the vast majority of those deaths were in people over the age of 70, that children are at a thousandfold lower risk of harm from COVID than elderly people. So we should not have taken a one-size-fits-all policy approach, whether it was lockdowns, uh, school closures, vaccine mandates. We basically gave everyone the same thing without recognizing that COVID is an entirely different problem for someone over the age of 70 and for someone under the age of 50, it's really negligible or comparable to what we would see with other respiratory viruses like common colds or influenza. So we should have done more to protect the elderly and we should have allowed other people to go about their lives, building up natural immunity, maintaining the ability to work and support their families, maintaining the healthcare infrastructure and caring for people with illnesses other than COVID. But instead, we took this biosecurity, one-size-fits-all, draconian approach to the pandemic, which ended up doing far more harm than good. Finally, what have we learned from this pandemic that could help us in the future? Well, I hope we've learned that censorship and science are totally incompatible. Science needs to be an open-ended process characterized by conjecture and hypothesis and testing and refutation and deliberation and debate. And if you try to suppress scientific voices or scientific opinions to project a false sense of scientific consensus, you end up doing a lot of harm to the practice of science and medicine. So censorship is not a good way to manage a crisis. I hope we've learned that there are fundamental civil rights that should never be abandoned, even during a pandemic, even and especially during a crisis, whether it's wartime or an epidemic or any other crisis, are First Amendment rights of the free exercise of religion, freedom of speech, free association, and a free press are especially important when they are under pressure, when we are tempted to compromise those rights because of a, a crisis or an emergency. That's precisely when we need to double down and say, no, whenever we give up these rights, historically, bad things happen. And it's not okay to cut corners. It's not okay to hold these rights in abeyance or suspend them simply because we're dealing with a really difficult situation. So revisiting and understanding again why our founders instantiated those rights at the very beginning of the Bill of Rights in our Constitution, I think is something that hopefully Americans can rediscover and recommit to. 
Dr. Aaron Cariotti is director of the program in bioethics and American democracy at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and the Health and Human Flourishing Program at the Zephyr Institute in Palo Alto, California. He previously taught psychiatry at the University of California, Irvine, and is author of the new book, The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. You can purchase this book at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Dr. Cariotti, thank you very much. Thanks, Todd. Pastor Chris Rosebro of Fighting for the Faith joins us after the break. It's This Week in Pop Christianity, Today, The Marks of a False Prophet. Archbook's Treasury Christmas Collection is the perfect Christmas gift for children, grandchildren, and godchildren ages 5 through 9. This new resource is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. You can also purchase Archbook's Treasury Christmas Collection at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for December, Archbook's Treasury Christmas Collection, 1-800-325-3040, or issuesetc.org. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's life ministry is thousands of people sharing Christ's love and mercy and giving witness to our Lord's creation of life, His design for marriage and the family, and the God-given value of all human life from conception to natural death. Working with many partners, LCMS Life Ministries sponsors human care efforts that meet the needs of body and soul and provides resources and educational events for all ages. To learn more, email lifeministry at lcms.org and visit lcms.org life. Where Christianity meets culture, you're listening to Issues Etc. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Join Lutherans for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 19th through Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Go to lutheransforlife.org to learn more about our Why for Life Washington, D.C. Youth Conference. Deadline for registration is December 15th. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org. LutheransForLife.org